Welcome to the Off Street Podcast featuring Adam Reiner and Sean Dan. Off Street contains general information that is not suitable for everyone and contains certain forward-looking statements of future possibilities that due to known and unknown risks and other uncertainties and factors may differ materially from actual results. As such, there is no guarantee that any views and opinions expressed herein will come to pass. Off Street is presented for informational purposes and nothing contained herein should be construed as a solicitation to buy or sell any security or as an offer to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. Additionally, this communication contains information derived from third-party sources. Although we believe these sources to be reliable, we make no representations as to their accuracy or completeness. Adam and Sean are employees of Marshall Financial Group, Inc., a registered investment advisor. For additional information about the firm, including its services and fees, send for the firm's disclosure brochure or visit advisorinfo.sec.gov. All right, Sean, it is Tuesday, October 31st, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's Halloween which is fitting because my soul left my body last week when the Phillies <laughs> lost. Yes, this is probably the last time you'll hear us talk about the Phillies until March. Maybe fortunately for you guys, unfortunately for us. I haven't listened back to last week's episode. We probably sound like idiots I'm, with all our hope and aspirations. and It's embarrassing at this point. Goals. <laughs> but <laughs> we, we're supposed to be getting ready to head out to a World Series game right now. They ripped our heart out before the episode even came out, I think. So that's just the further icing on the cake you know we sat here we were so confident so confident wasn't, like, a, wasn't a worry in the world no it was like of course they're gonna win tonight how could they lose it sucks but i don't want to talk about the phillies again until march yeah you're you're taking happens. it much harder than i am <laughs> <laughs> i'm bummed out it's halloween we have the, ha- the halloween spirit to pull us out of our misery for some of us or i guess and if you like halloween if you, if you like, like that sort of thing i think of it as a preseason game for the real holidays that are coming up in november and december but all right I'm a big I'm a big Halloween guy. I like Halloween. I feel like it's peak fall. Yeah, we, we hit peak fall today. It seems to be a, a popular take. A lot of people seem to like Halloween. I think I'm in the minority that I don't. I just I don't find the day enjoyable. I think the whole thing's a hassle. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you got you. I mean, you got little kids. You got a, a house that you got to give candy out. You got to take your kids out. So I'm, I can see it being a little bit more a chore. Yeah, for you know, you. I think even pre kids. I think I'm just a Halloween Scrooge. <laughs> yeah, that, <okay>. like. <laughs> I have to go buy candy for kids that I'm not going to interact with most of the year, and they're just going to show up at my door, and they're going to expect something, and I'm, I'm going to oblige and be the good neighbor and hand stuff out, but I think it's a hassle. Well, in this year, according to the Associated Press, it's going to be even more expensive for you to do that. Yes, yeah, so just add it to the, the list of things <laughs> against Halloween. So there's there's a new inflation term that's come out this year, and it's called spookflation. I like it. So I like that a lot, just actually. Add, add it to the growing list. I I also think of different quote flations. Yes, is it's a great term. And Halloween candy is up thirteen percent in price this year, and it's even more expensive in Pennsylvania and Maryland for some reason. Okay, the the article didn't explain why. (laughs) Let's try to break down the price increase here. I pulled up just a regular Hershey bar, flipped it over, looked at the ingredients on the back. Really, four main ingredients: sugar, milk, chocolate, cocoa butter. So this year. Just looking at sugar, the number one ingredient in a Hershey bar, 50% price increase compared to last Halloween. And it's really, there was expected to be a sugar surplus. There wasn't a sugar sugar surplus. There were crop losses driven in part by bad weather. So I never thought we'd be on here talking about the sugar commodity. Though I guess we talked about wheat quite a bit last year. So that was part of, part of the reason. The other major contributor, cocoa butter, up more than 60% since last Halloween. That was driven by heavy rains and rot-causing disease that wreaked havoc on cocoa crops in West Africa. 
there's there are fundamental reasons why as Halloween candy costs more. It's just not oh my god, the price of everything's going up and candy's going with it. There's actually like an economic tie in here. It feels like that Malcolm Gladwell book. Well, the, the butterfly effect stuff. Yes, there you go. We got we got rain in West Africa, and now Halloween candy is expensive in Maryland. Yes. It is interesting. I, I think uh, the spookflation, this is kind of one of those jump scare things. Just it, You know you're going to get clicks, and it's going to rile people up. Obviously, Halloween candy is not that big of anyone's budget. But it it is interesting, too, especially in this day and age of geopolitical conflict, weird climate events, deglobalization of even just a little piece of milk chocolate from Hershey's, how many different components from different parts of the world go into it. If nothing else, it's a reminder that to a large extent, it's still an interconnected and globalized economy. And it's the way supply chains work. We can't grow all the components in the U.S. to make a Hershey bar. Yes. There's just this this loop of bad weather can cause things to happen. It's very important to understand. And also just the idea of, like you said, nothing happens in a vacuum. And a lot of times it can be helpful when you see a scary economic headline come across is let's identify why. A bad rainy season that looks like it's a one-off event is a lot less scary than are we just going to have candy prices go up 15% a year for the next 30 years. It's it's two wildly different things. Is this one pound bag of fun-sized candy bars going to cost me $50 next (laughs) Halloween? But I thought it was interesting in this article they said spending on candy is expected to reach $3.6 billion for Halloween. Which feels like a large number to me. You could buy like a mid-tier MLB team for that price. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the the kind of the the main story that we want to talk about today, we have an interview with, with someone from Charles Schwab that we talked to at Schwab Impact last week, is about the active passive debate. TLDR passive funds have been gaining on active funds for a while now. But just a fun little story to kick us off here. I was scrolling Twitter this weekend and came across an account. Seems to be kind of this day trader, new age meme stock person. Okay. And they were very upset at Fidelity. They tagged Fidelity Investments, the main page, in a tweet asking where their Bed Bath & Beyond shares went. Because okay. they, <laughs> they disappeared from their account and they were very upset. And Fidelity replied to this, to this person, quote, Hi, shares of Bed Bath & Beyond have been delisted. This security has been deemed to have no stockholder equity. It is now considered worthless. There will be no future distributions and positions have been removed from shareholders' accounts as of October 18th, 2023. To which this trader responded, deemed to have no stockholder value by who? With by who in all caps. Question mark. Exclamation point. It's a cold world out there, Adam. (laughs) No. (laughs) Sometimes... Financial and investing lessons are hard. There's, there's, this is one of them. There's no better introduction of free markets than having something like this happen. Yes. When, when you are the equity holder, you are <laughs> last in line. And especially when you're, you're uh, assuming this person came about in 2020, 2021, when your first exposure is just making money without even trying, and then you get a little bit of a blip. Free markets can be heartless. But, you know, it's, it's better to learn that lesson now than, yes. than later on. Definitely. So there was this article in Bloomberg. It was titled, Active versus Passive Investing, Money Managers Confront End of a Bull Market. And it won't go through the whole thing. I'll just break it out to this one line. Passive products have been gaining so much traction, regardless of whether markets go up or down, that by mid-year, they accounted for half of all assets in U.S. mutual funds and ETFs, up from 47% in 22 and 44% in 2021, just underscores a shift that we've seen in investing, like you said, from mutual funds, 
to ETF. Yeah, a decade ago, it was about, I think they said 27% was in ETFs. And now you just said we're at 50%. And it's only continued to grow. I'll point out just one line from the article. They talked about about 90% of additional revenue taken in by money managers have come from rising markets, not from new money. It's just the fact that markets have gone up over time and that's how they're making more money. And it's tough. It's tough, tough to have a business model that operates that way, not to be an alarmist, but these are some of these are very well-established mutual fund companies and they're slowly dying is the, what this article points out. Like they just can't, won't, won't be able to sustain themselves if, if markets stay here. They need to come up with new and creative ways to revive their business. Yeah, the numbers are alarming. So last week we were at Schwab Impact, and while we were there, we had the opportunity to speak with David Botset, who's Senior Vice President, Head of Strategy and Product at Charles Schwab, which felt very timely given this article that Schwab had released their annual ETF study. And we were able to go through the study a day or two ahead of time before it was released last Thursday in preparation of our meeting with David, and we were able to go through some of the highlights. So we sat down with David, went through the study. Study is now public if you want to view it as you listen, and you will hear our conversation with David now. All right, Sean, we are here live at the Schwab Impact Conference in Philadelphia, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by David Botset, Senior Vice President, Head of Strategy and Product at Charles Schwab. In his role, David leads strategy, product development, product management, and governance teams at Schwab. David, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Would you mind just, in, in a layman's terms, explaining what you do at Schwab? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's probably easiest explained to saying uh, we work on the Schwab proprietary investment products. So mutual funds, ETFs, money market funds, separately managed accounts. Working on product development and product management, which means tending and caring to those proprietary products we make available to RIAs and retail clients. Great. And one of the things you and your team work on is a annual ETF study. Yes, yes, yes. We've been doing it for over a decade. Yeah, so for more than 10 years, Rob has conducted this study, and the study seeks to uncover trends in ETF investing and shed light on investors' knowledge and behavior around ETFs. This year's study was actually released today and had over 2,200 participants between the ages of 25 and 75 years old that participated. David, what stood out to you the most about this year's study? You know, there are two things that really stood out to us. Uh, Number one is the investor familiarity with ETFs has grown immensely, especially for the younger demographics, that millennial uh, cohort of, of survey respondents, very familiar with ETFs, and ETFs in their portfolios are representing a larger a share of their, their total wealth and investments. The other that was a bit more surprising was millennials have a larger allocation to fixed income than what we're seeing with the older generations. And I think that's probably counter to what most people would expect to see. I think it was the most shocking part of the study when when I first looked at it. Uh, On average, the amount of a portfolio invested in equities was about 69% for baby boomers and only about 55% for millennials. And on the fixed income side, it was about 50% for millennials and 36% for baby boomers. Any insight as to why you think that is? You know, when when we start to think about that cohort of investors, that, that millennial generation, we have to remember where they've come from and what they've seen in the market as they've gotten older and started their investing. 
they've seen either in some cases firsthand the older part of the millennials or in many cases with their parents going through great challenging times. Would that be the global financial crisis and the downturn in, in portfolio valuations during that period of time? In some cases, those millennials are also coming out of high school, coming out of college. They started working, looking for jobs that just weren't there. So the, the thought is that they tend to be a little bit more conservative than the older generation has been as they start their investing. We were looking at it this morning. It looked like the median millennial, they came to investing age almost exactly in 2008. And so, Adam, you know, you, you fall into that category as well. I do. So it's just interesting to kind of see that play out. One thing I think that was also interesting in, in the piece was investors were given five issues that we saw in the market in the past year. The five issues were market volatility, higher inflation, higher interest rates, recession fears, and geopolitical conflict. And they were asked, in light of these things, how have you changed your approach? And across the board, for all five, I think it was pretty refreshing for us to see, only 20 to 25% said that, that they were pulling back. The other 75% were either staying pat or leaning into that volatility. It was reassuring to us. I think we were a little surprised. What, what did you make of that? You know, we've been asking that question or a, a flavor of that question for several years. And, and it's a refreshing takeaway for us consistently is that investors are thinking about their portfolio allocations and largely not overreacting when they see these type of market events, staying the course with their portfolios, which is, which is a good thing, right? They, they want to stay invested. You know, too many times we think these wild swings in the market, uh, and many times, especially with ETFs, people follow flows really, really closely, and they think, oh, that's the mind of the retail investor. I think what the survey shows, it's, that's probably more the mind of the institutional investor that are causing these wide swings and flows of ETFs. The retail investor that are there, largely staying put with their allocations. Yeah, that, that consistency was nice to see, especially with this stat that was in the survey. 63% of investors still think 60-40 is the best mix. With all, everything that's been in the news lately over the past 12 to 18 months, with fixed income volatility, equity volatility, all occurring at the same time. We've seen these stories come out. As Sean and I have talked with clients at, at our firm about it. Is 60-40 still the best mix? It was refreshing to see that a majority of people still think so. What do you make of that? Yeah, I, I, think, I think there is a place in a portfolio for 60-40. It makes a lot of sense. Is it going to be perfect and work in every market environment? No. Right? There's, you can always shine a microscope on a segment of the time in the market where equity market volatility and bond prices are going down. I mean, that's what we've seen with the Fed trying to tame inflation, increasing interest rates dramatically. Right? In that type of environment, it, it may struggle. But let's look over the longer period of time. Most investors aren't thinking about what the next one or two years hold. Let's think about what that allocation holds over a 10 or 15 year period of time. And I think it serves investors quite well. It's especially interesting, too, pre-Fed hiking, rates were so low, and I think the argument is probably better then if it's, it's harder to make that case for bonds. Well, now we've reset higher. You don't necessarily have to see rates come down to get good bond returns in the future. So it's obviously nothing's guaranteed, nothing's perfect, but just by the math of it, it would seem 60-40s are a little bit better positioned than they were. I think so. As, as I often say, uh, we're back to an environment where fixed income has the income. It used yeah. to be fixed with no income. <laughs> there you go. Now we've got fixed income again. So yeah. that, that role it plays in your portfolio, not only is a stabilizer to equity market volatility, but also contributing to long-term returns. We're in a much better position today than we were 18, 24 months ago. And going back to the, the beginning of our conversation, it was again, millennial investors, 51% of them 
said they planned on investing in fixed income ETFs over the next year as compared to 40% for, for baby boomers. I know there was some active ETF data that caught your eye, Sean. Yeah, there, there was one good question. It asked people if they were very likely or somewhat likely to invest in active ETFs. And in 2022, 50% of people said that they were very likely to consider investing in active ETFs. That fell down to 43% this year. Obviously, 2022 is a tough year for everyone. Uh, very publicly, there were some some notable active ETFs that struggled. I know, just for example, the ARK funds, Kathy Wood, very much all over CNBC and Bloomberg. They had that meteoric rise and then a tough 2022. Where do you see that active ETF landscape going out of that rough 2022? Yeah, I think you, you, the data you point out is is exactly what the survey response shows. That that very likely category declined this year over 2022. What I like to look at, though, is the aggregate of the somewhat and very. That number stayed very close to the same. Sure. So I think that interest in active ETF remains. I think one of the questions that many investors have for active ETFs is, what's the long-term opportunity? You think about the percentage of active ETFs that have launched within the past two years. Many investors are still watching carefully. I know you, as I'm, I'm sure you talk to clients all the time. How many clients want to invest with something that doesn't have a three or five year track record? Right? So I think that category can be influenced over time as these ETFs that have come to market demonstrate the performance potential that they can deliver and investors better understand where to place it in their portfolio. Not so much active ETFs, but more on the thematic side or specialty ETFs. It looked like the top three areas were dividends, so I'd call that income long short, so a form of hedging, and then levered, which I'll just call speculation. Do you have any insight or visibility in, into how those top three have changed over the years? You know, I don't recall off the top of my head how they've changed, other than remembering that dividend has always been near the top. Uh, that consistently we are seeing. And, and it, in that specialty category over time, we've seen the largest flows consistently in that dividend category. I think some of those other categories can be very market timing dependent and how people are thinking about if they are making small changes in their portfolio, how they're trying to position that portion of their portfolio. Another interesting question, thought it was phrased interesting as well. Investors were asked to classify themselves relative to three different car options. Are you, what, what type of investor are you? Would you compare yourself to like a mid-sized sedan that's reliable or a self-driving car that's more futuristic, technology-focused, or a luxury vehicle? And I was somewhat surprised about one in four ETF investors consider themselves luxury investors. And at least me growing up, I think most people when you're first introduced to the stock market, it's all about the stock pickers and, and active and, and stuff of that nature. And usually you see the ETFs as the low cost, reliable, boring options. But there, maybe there's a shift change there. How, how have you seen that change over time? You know, the, we haven't asked this specific question in the past, but you think about that classification. It's self-identified classification, right? And I think the one thing we think about with ETF investors, many of them feel like they're a little bit on the forefront. Right? You sure. think about the majority of investors continue to use products outside of the ETF. So in some cases, I think they self-identify as being a little bit more on that forefront because they're leading edge of where many of the new dollars are going and investing. With this study, and just, I guess, more recently, Schwab has started looking more closely at the trend of personalization. And in the study, 78% plan to make investments that align with their personal values. And in regards to personalization, it was most important to millennials, more so than the baby boomers, which is initially kind of surprising to me. Do you 
have any insight into why that may be? Yeah, you know, anecdotally, so it wasn't asked specifically in the survey, but anecdotally what we've heard over time is that those baby boomers frequently will think about, I want to maximize my returns in my portfolio. And then as I build wealth, I'm going to find a way to give back through other means. So building wealth and not wanting to potentially sacrifice returns because I didn't invest in an oil company and oil has been really, really strong. You know, whereas, whereas I think the younger generation has a little bit different mindset. They still want to do good with their wealth, but as they're doing good, they want to invest in companies that are also doing good. So I think that's kind of a mind shift in both cases, the, the end investors wanting to do more for society around them. It's just about how they're achieving that. Along that personalization trend, there was a surprisingly high, or at least we th- were surprised, of people aware and wanting to uh, participate in direct indexing. How have you seen that shift throughout the the life of the survey? You know, it's interesting because direct indexing has been around for a a long, long time. But I think even in an event like here at Impact, where you see a lot more education happening, to me, uh, it's like ETFs were 10 or 15 years ago, kind of early on and people are just starting to hear about what it is and what it can mean in my portfolio they've already become more accustomed to index investing so i've got that but then what is the benefit of direct indexing potentially provide me over an etf if i just care about low cost maybe the etf route is the way to go if i want more personalization i want more uh, tax loss harvesting to provide a tax off then maybe i should be looking at direct indexing so i think we're we're kind of on that edge of Uh, more widespread education and awareness to continue to drive that interest from investors. On the education front with direct indexing, is there anything you think investors should be aware of? Even just walking around the exhibit hall here at the conference, it seems like many companies are starting to launch a direct indexing product. And as you said, education is going to be very important. What, what should they be looking for? You know, I think the, the end experience for an investor that's in direct indexing is very different than the experience of an ETF. I'll give you just one example. Even though, and I'll say that even though the outcome can end up being very close to the same. Just one example, though, is you, you want to invest in uh, an index, an equity index that has a thousand securities in it. If I do that via an ETF, when I log into my account, I see one ETF versus if I'm investing in direct indexing and I have a thousand index security, I may be holding four or 500 individual securities in my account. That element of the experience in and of itself is very, very different when you go to direct indexing versus ETFs. So I think part of it is not only educating on what the potential benefits of direct indexing is, it's helping the investor understand from a client experience perspective, how that's different than if I were to use an ETF in place of that direct indexing offer. Personalization being a, a newer topic probably in this year's study, especially with direct indexing. Just since Schwab has started this ETF study, how have you or Schwab, have you seen things change, consumer preferences change with ETFs? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with what hasn't changed. And what hasn't changed is cost remains king. You know, people look at ETFs can, and we ask those questions consistently. What's the number one factor influencing your decision? And cost is always number one. Tradeability, bid ask spreads, things of that nature, two, three, four, five. What's changed dramatically is the gap between number one and number two, three, four, and five. I think that's really narrowed that gap because prices have come down. 
So the difference between three, four, or five basis points is much different today than it was five years ago when that gap may have been 10 or 15 basis points. So suddenly attributes two, three, four, and five have a higher place in the selection criteria for investors. That definitely makes sense. And I guess kind of if that's how we've gone from then to now, looking towards the future, are there any emerging trends that you think are going to really take hold moving forward? I know we talked about direct, direct indexing. Is that the one or is there anything else that we should look out for? Well, I think direct indexing will continue to play a role and increase in size. I don't think it necessarily takes over for ETFs. ETFs will continue to be a, a, a great solution for investors. I, I think the one thing that you touched on earlier is the use of active right? We're seeing many more firms either launch new strategies or convert actively managed mutual funds to ETFs. I think that's going to be a trend that we continue to see in the growth of the ETF landscape in the marketplace. And those types of products will ultimately find their way into client portfolios. Is there anything in the study that you found really important that we didn't touch on today? You no, know, I, I think that maybe the one thing you didn't ask about is kind of what is also going to be that future driver of growth of assets. And the one thing that we see is it coming from non-ETF investors, right? One of the questions talks about, um, or asked the question of non-ETF investors is how likely are you to invest in an ETF in the next two years? And we're seeing a majority of those non-ETF investors indicating they're likely to purchase an ETF in the future, but what are they going to need? They're going to need more education, more insight, more help in doing that. So as much as we uh, in this room at this conference, no ETFs. There's a lot of investors that continue to need that help and education. Do you think that is a function of the cost and ease of investing in ETFs or is more active strategies that may be, have been in a mutual fund wrapper now becoming active ETFs? I think it's a combination of both. The ETF wrapper has the, the positive elements of tradability, increased tax efficiency that the mutual fund doesn't have. But what we're also seeing is when active strategies launch in an ETF or a conversion, fees are coming down. So it's a natural byproduct of being a more effective uh, vehicle for an asset manager to deliver. It's also providing that fee differential, even if it's an active strategy in an ETF. Great. Well, we certainly look forward to seeing how this study changes next year and into the future as well. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. That was our interview with David Botset from Charles Schwab. A lot of interesting insights, a lot of interesting things in terms of where we are headed in the passive ETF landscape. Thank you again to David and Charles Schwab for, for making the time to do that. Yeah, and if you're interested in viewing the study, you can just look up Charles Schwab ETFs and Beyond Study, and it'll probably pop up right on Google for you. Should we switch over to Uncorrelated here, Sean? Let's do it. So we're going to start with my favorite one here. Okay. This is the first ever Florida Man Games will feature beer belly wrestling an evading arrest obstacle course <laughs> in St. Augustine, Florida. It is described as a competition as the quote-unquote most insane athletic showdown on earth, and the games will poke fun at Florida's reputation for producing strange news stories involving guns, drugs, booze, and reptiles. It's electric. Take a step back. You know what it sounds a lot like? I do not. Philadelphia Eagles tailgate. Oh, okay. The, the evading, there we go. They said the evading arrest obstacle course where you'll be chased by real police officers. Okay. Drunk, beer belly drunk wrestling. And uh, yeah, expensive tickets to get in. Expensive parking. For $45 general admission tickets for that's, this event. That's steep. That That is more than the tickets we're selling for in Arizona from when, when the Phillies played out yes. there the other week. NL, NLCS playoff game. 
certain NFL games for sure were selling for less than that, or Beer Belly Wrestling, Florida Man games. They say, the organizers say this, quote unquote, this isn't just a competition. It's a one of a kind Floridian spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> it's great marketing. I'm, I'm amped about it. I'm not even in Florida. You know, I might have to suggest this as a uh, New Year's activity for my parents. Now, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's a joke. (laughs) Just economic tie-in here. Data from the Tampa Bay Economic Development Council and the U.S. Census that was published in March shows that Florida ranks number one in net migration. Checks out. Lots of people moving to Florida. Not many people leaving. The unemployment rate in Florida is currently 2.8%, which is below the national rate of 3.8%. And Florida's seasonally adjusted house price index remains near its all-time highs. So, you know, it's it's a fun event. Interesting way to poke fun at the Florida man stereotype. Yes. But overall, the the economy in Florida continues to do pretty well. Yes. Not to mention the probably various newspapers around the country that they continue to stimulate with their wild stories, Florida men. From the Sunshine State to the land of 10,000 lakes, Sean. Ah, yes. That would be Minnesota, right? Minnesota. Turns out the people in Minnesota are Minnesota nice, but actually they're just less stressed than most Americans. It is the least stressed state in the United States, Okay, Minnesota. Least stressed state in the country. This comes from a wallet hub study that CNBC wrote about last week. They ranked each state on four different categories, work-related stress, money-related stress, family-related stress, and health and safety-related stress. And they found that overall, Minnesota was the least stressed state in the country. On the opposite end of the spectrum was Mississippi as the most stressed state. Pennsylvania, our home state, pretty much right in the middle, finished 31st. But in Minnesota, Minnesotans experience the least amount of money and family-related stress, which makes makes sense. The Minnesota economy is also doing very well. Unemployment rate, 3.1%. House Seasonally adjusted house price index, also near its all-time highs pretty much like the rest of the country, um, or at least consistent with the national index. So I thought it was interesting to kind of pivot away from Minnesota for a minute here. Utah was the happiest state in America. I did not see that one coming. You can kind of see it, right? Like I picture, I thought it would have been like Hawaii. Hawaii, okay, Hawaii, sure, Hawaii. And not only is Utah the happiest state, it also has the highest volunteer rate at 40.7%. Here's the tie-in back to Florida. It is 2.6 times higher than the volunteer rate in Florida, which has the lowest volunteer rate. Interesting. Yeah, surprisingly, Florida, I would think it would have scored very highly. They actually, they, as long as with most of the southeastern United States, pretty pretty stressed, pretty stressed. But Minnesota and much of the kind of that northern Midwest, low stress. All those nice, All those nice Midwestern people got pretty stable economies up there can kind of see it minnesota would probably be a great place to live i feel like it's probably pretty similar to pa right yeah Pro- probably a little too cold for me a little bit all right a little bit i mean it felt cold today <laughs> walking around <laughs> yeah, it's like 55 <laughs> degrees <laughs> at lunch my car said it was 48 48 48 all right a little chilly a little, a little chilly for Put that wind chill in too what do you have in the way of parting thoughts sean we already touched on it hopefully boring jay tomorrow uh as we head into november Another disappointing October. I think it's our third straight month of negative gains on the S&P 500. So hopefully we can break that trend next month. But beyond that, through the through the kind of the main guts of earnings season. So at this point, trying to get to the end of the year. There was a piece of news that came out from the Treasury yesterday that I thought was interesting. And that was that the U.S. Treasury 
cut their quarterly borrowing estimate to $776 billion, down from $852 billion after upgrading the projected uh, revenues they expect to bring in. So that was good. It's, that's a heavy issuance month for treasuries. Could be a source for rate volatility. So hopefully that helps the rate market a little bit. It feels like at this point it's about, about the treasury and rates more so than about the Fed here in November, unless Jay Powell says something really <laughs> unexpected tomorrow. Yeah, it could be an interesting changing of the guard. The last 18 months, it was the Fed making the moves. Now, like you said, issuance has the, the probably the bigger potential to shake rates. So now that we're touching 5% on the 10-year, hopefully we can see some, some mellowing out of those rates. We'll be watching tomorrow, and hopefully it is far less drama-filled than Fed meetings of the past. Absolutely. Otherwise, until next week. 